So once the children, the youth, and all their teachers leave, there's eight of you here to have this study. This might be a good time to mention we need more children's space, so if any of you are sitting on a big pile of money you would like to, you know, give towards children's space, the proof's in the pudding. Clint, will you pull that door? Turn to Jonah. Turn to Jonah. We um, always love Wednesday night studies, and I was mentioning to someone earlier that at the end of the semester, I'm always exhausted and tired and ready for a break, and then a few weeks after we have a break, I'm like, man, let's just start back up on Wednesday nights, because it's this thing, it, it always starts like this, where there's a few less people, it grows, you gain some momentum, we're, we're digging in the Word together, and I love it. And so um, we're going to be in Jonah tonight, um, just sort of some big picture things before I pray and go specifically to the text. Um, we, we use Wednesday nights to move through the scriptures more quickly. Not in, not in a sloppy way, but we, we preach expositorily or expositionally. I'm still not sure which one is the right word. I think they both mean the same thing, but the dictionary.com doesn't see either of them as real words. So we preach expositorily or expositionally, uh, whichever you prefer. And Ben has described that. Ben is our preaching pastor who does the majority of the preaching. And he's described that as um, sort of low crawling. He talks about his military days when you would low crawl, and the point was to get close to the ground and don't miss anything. And so he, he, he preaches in a way to where we kind of put our, our face in the dirt of the word, and we don't want to miss anything. We may spend a whole Sunday on a phrase or a word or punctuation mark or something crazy like that, if it matters and it helps us to understand, we'll move slowly. We move through the book of John over the course of years. We move through the book of Hebrews over the course of years. And now we are in Ephesians and I'm doing Romans and Brad's working on um, First, Second Timothy. And then we're going to look at Isaiah. So we've only actually made it all the way through two books in the 13, almost 13 year life of this church. So we move very slowly on Sunday mornings. Wednesday nights, we try to move at a, at a more expeditious rate so that we can get sort of a bird's eye view, a survey study of larger portions of the scripture so that we have, we're well-rounded. Um, you know, if you spent all of your time in Corinthians, you may grow to, to, to hate the church because <laughs> they were so messed up. You, you may grow to become a little disenfranchised, but, but we, we want to make sure we get a well-rounded you know, understanding of the, of the scriptures. And, and kind of the way we look at it is if a kid grows up in, in this church, you know, if, if they're born here, if they grow up here, we want them to leave here having covered a large majority, if not all of the scripture in some way, shape, form, or fashion. And so on Wednesday nights, what we're doing is moving more quickly. And so like this Jonah study will be one week. And when we move on next week to Micah, we'll, study, we'll spend two weeks on it. But we're not generally spending more than two weeks in any book. So because of that, I encourage y'all to spend some time reading on your own because you'll be that much more equipped to come and consider some of the main details as we do sort of an overview study. Mark Dever has an Old Testament survey that I'm using as sort of a guideline um, because he's really brilliant and there's no need to reinvent the wheel. And I'm not sure I could if I even had all the time in the world to do it quite like he has. And so it's a very, very good resource that if you want to study a little more, dig a little deeper, I would encourage you to get that resource from Mark Dever. It's his Old Testament survey. And when we move to the New Testament, turns out he has one for that too. So we will continue the way we began and, uh, and, and utilize that as a significant resource. Um, and obviously the Bible is central uh, to, to everything we do. Last semester, we took a brief 
step away from our movement through books of the Bible for the discipline study. And we studied through all the spiritual disciplines. Um, and uh, that was a sweet time. So this, this time, tonight, we're jumping back in where we left off when we uh, went to the discipline study. So uh, I would like to pray, and, um, and then um, we'll dig in. Before I pray, sorry, there's just so much housekeeping. I'm so excited. I'm so sorry. I have to keep adding things. Um, what we do on Wednesday nights, you know, we tell you guys, there's, there's so many young families here and so many kids, as we just saw 90% of the room leave. Um, it's, it's the parent's responsibility to be the main disciple maker in the lives of their child. And so I grew up in a church where you would kind of take your kid to church and let a professional take care of it. You know, let, you know, don't try this at home sort of approach. And we do the total opposite here, where it is clear that God calls you to raise your children in the fear and discipline of the Lord as you, as you go, as you sit, as you lie down, whatever you're doing. You look for opportunities. You look for teachable moments to, to communicate um, the gospel and to share the truth about Jesus. And so on this study, our children are going through the gospel project curriculum, which there's apps and there's all kinds of resources that Annie and Tiff um, have available for you guys. But for those who are older, we are going through this together. And so they're always going to be one week behind where you are. So we're in Jonah this week. They're going to be in Jonah next week utilize that to facilitate more conversation within your homes because they will be studying the very thing you studied. And the, the whole purpose of that is to see um, more of the Bible together as a family and have more opportunities for conversation. So, so make the most of that. And then the goal here is that by the end of the semester, if all goes according to plan, we will finish the Old Testament, which is great. And so you can guess where we'll go next semester. So let's pray and we'll dive into Jonah. Lord, we love you. Um, I'm always thankful to be able to gather, as I've already said in prayer before our time in worship and song, um, to gather in the middle of the week, to stop down for an hour, to consider your word, to not have to whisper. Um, Lord, it is a blessing. It is an absolute blessing to have that freedom and to um, have any eagerness to, to spend time in the word together. And so my prayer tonight is that as we study Jonah and we study this book, this short book, that you would teach us things that we would otherwise not know. Uh, my prayer is that we would even, as we're doing with Sunday Sermon, continue to think over these things when we leave, knowing that you give us understanding when we do that. Um, Lord, I, I trust the work of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would keep me in step with the Spirit. Um, just use my mouth as yours and say what you want to say. And as, as well, Lord, I would pray that you would keep me from saying anything that's not of you and that's not true. Lord, we also want to take a moment to pray for our school district and for all the kids who are getting back in classes, uh, for all the parents who are getting back into routines and leading their families. And uh, we also especially want to pray for our teachers, many of whom are parents. Pray that the teachers would really seek to serve the kids well in the, in the environment uh, of the classroom uh, so that they would teach them well. I pray for patience. I pray for attentiveness with the kids. And I pray that ultimately you would be glorified um, in that time, especially um, for teachers who, who love Christ and who want to be servant-hearted because Christ came not to be served but to serve. Uh, we love you, Lord. We thank you for our time tonight and pray that you would guide it. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Jonah. If you're not there, it's right after Obadiah, in case you're more familiar with Obadiah and not Jonah for some reason. Um, from our previous studies, what have we learned about the prophets? What do y'all know about prophets? Major or minor? 
They tell Israel stuff that they don't want to hear. That's exactly right. They should want to hear it, but generally they don't. Yes, life was tough for prophets, and sometimes they were very reluctant, much like we'll find with old Jonah tonight, to, uh, they, were, they were reluctant to speak what needed to be spoken, and it brought hardship to, to some of them. I remember growing up, and I studied the prophets as a child, and I just thought, how cool would that be to be a prophet, to hear directly from God, and to be so close? And that was mainly because the teaching method was be like Jonah, be like David, be like Isaiah. Be, it was just be like whoever we're talking about. And it wasn't actually talking about them as real people who were very flawed and, and, uh, and fallible. And so Jonah, it, the, I'll, spoiler alert, the, the point of tonight's study is not be like Jonah. Um, we, will, we will dig in and see why here very shortly. What else do we know about prophets? What do they speak? Prophecy. From who? From God. So they're not just people with deep thoughts and ideas and want to talk. Um, they, they speak from God. Uh, here's a question to prepare for this. How do we prepare for heaven? Just a little light question to get us moving. How do we prepare for heaven? Study the Word? Ooh, live with an eternal perspective. I love that answer. Sanctification? Chewing on the word, preach word particularly. How about time with God? That's kind of what I was searching for there. Time with God, all those sort of, you know, they do that. You're talking about God's word. You're talking about eternal perspective when you're with God. But we prepare for heaven. We prepare for eternity by spending time with God because that is the ultimate treasure of eternity. So what would it look like? You already stole my words. What would it look like if we had an eternal perspective and a continual awareness of God's presence. What would that look like? How would that play out day to day if we had an eternal perspective and a continual awareness of God's presence? What would that, how would that play out every day? What are some things? Just throw them out. Way more laid back. So your lack of laid backedness stems from a, a focus on the now instead of a focus on the eternal. Okay. Use your time and money differently? Absolutely. We've been talking about inheritance on Sunday mornings. That, that, would, that makes a difference. Yeah? Maybe more patient, more long-suffering, more quick to hear, slow to speak. How else? Eternal perspective, continual awareness of God's presence. Yeah, you would invest in eternal things. So if you don't invest in eternal things, what does that say about your perspective? Yeah, you're short-sighted. What about sin? A continual awareness of God's presence, what impact would that have on sin? It would make you think twice about just perpetually moving in the same thing you've been moving in. And it also would have, give you a different perspective of the sin of others. You'd be concerned about that. So we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight. Look at verses 1 and 2 in Jonah chapter 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of, uh, we're just going to say Amittai. Uh, I don't know if the right emphasis is along the right syllable there, but Amittai saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. 
So, to be clear, who's talking here? God. And who's God talking to? Jonah. And where is he telling Jonah to go? And what does he want Jonah to say to the Ninevites? He's calling them out. For what? For being evil. Okay. So that, we're all clear on that. So I want to give you some background on Nineveh before we go any further. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It's about a 2,000-acre impressive setup. This, this all takes place, the setting is the 8th century B.C. And so just as I'm painting this picture, kind of picture what it would look like, what it would be like, what the dynamics would be like in a city like this. 2,000 acres, 50-mile uh, um, aqueduct from the mountains that comes down to provide infrastructure, very impressive for its time, good roads, um, buildings were impressive. I mean, this was a, a significant place here in Nineveh. Prophecies were regularly brought to this great city during this time. So a, a lot of these details you can just get from your ESV Bible in the front, the notes leading up to the, to the book. And it helps when you're studying the Bible to see what the background is in these locations and what was going on in the lives of these people. So we have this 2,000-acre thing, 8th century, capital of the Assyrian Empire. Prophecies were regularly brought here. So there were so many prophecies that were being brought to Nineveh and to the Assyrian Empire that they actually had officials who were employed full-time to sift through all of these different messages to see if it was important. Well, that tells you something about the way that they thought. They were what we call polytheists, which means they believed in many gods. And they believed not just that there were many gods, but that, that those many gods spoke to them. And so they actually had people on staff to sort through all these different prophecies. So Jonah's being called to go there, so Jonah's going to go, and some staff member's going to greet him and sort through this prophecy um, about the evil that's going on in Nineveh. We also know from ancient Assyrian records um, that a complete solar eclipse occurred on June 15th of 763 BC during the same time period. Soon after that eclipse, there were floods and there were famine. There was famine. And so what we have in Nineveh is a setting of a lot of people who are very, very powerful, who believe in many gods who believe that they can hear from the gods through these prophecies. They've got a staff ready to hear the prophecies. They had this solar eclipse that was a big deal. And then from that, there was famine. From that, there was heartache. There, was, there were hard times in there. And, and um, there was uh, floods. And if you look at Jonah's timeline, he likely landed in Nineveh either months or years after this strained time for, for this capital of the Assyrian Empire. So... Given the traumatic nature of their uh, recent disasters, um, your ESV study Bible notes that the Ninevites may have been fully inclined to believe their city was about to be overturned. Like it's kind of a prime time for them to hear exactly what God just told Jonah that they need to hear. Things are not going well. They may be convinced, in fact, hey, maybe we're not bulletproof. Maybe we're not a, for, a forever guaranteed thing, and they can hear something about being overturned because of their wickedness. So, the big picture, it's also worth considering the fact that the city's greatest century um, would have followed what would have been the special period of repentance. So, if you look at the history books, you look at these Assyrian records, sh the goal here is repentance. And it's interesting because in the timeline, some of their most 
um, successful times, the height of their empire would have followed a time of special repentance. So that's the background for Nineveh. So what about Israel's background? Because Jonah is a prophet for Israel. Again, your ESV study Bible has an insightful note. If you go through and you look at the, the, uh, the fathers and the granddads and the kings, you read through like First and Second Kings of your Bible and you've heard Ben talk a lot about it's good king, bad king, bad king, good king, good king, bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad And it's just up and down in these good kings and bad kings. And um, God would often relent when the good king would come and there would be a time of, of, uh, of not such... Um, terrible dynamics because of the bad leadership when good leadership stepped in, and the good leadership was always defined by who listens to God, who cares about God. And so if you look through that family tree, what you'll find is that Jonah prophesied under the leadership of Jeroboam II. So Jehoahaz, you're going to need to write down all these. We're going to have a quiz over it later. Jehoahaz was Jeroboam II's great-granddaddy, and Jehoahaz was a bad king. He, he was a really bad king, and his bad leadership led Israel into sin, into iniquity, into turning on from God, into listening more to the culture than to God, and the result was oppression for many years, and uh, pr- oppression particularly from Assyria. Um, there's Assyria here, and then Assyria is over here, here's Israel over here, and then here's Tarshish kind of down here, and then here's the Mediterranean where Jonah splits, spoiler alert, Jonah didn't immediately do what he was supposed to. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But that kind of gives you an idea that they were being oppressed by those around them because they're bad kings. And the result was this oppression for many years. In 2 Kings 13, 23, you don't have to turn there, but I would like to, um, to read it to you. You can turn there with me if you would like. Um, 2 Kings 13, 23, at least write it in your notes. It, it says this about God. And, and it's nice to prove the Bible with the Bible. Um, and, and see these, these timelines um, uh, all agreeing with, with each other and, and proving themselves. Um, in 1323, it says this. You see Je- Jehoahaz reigning in Israel, Jehoash, which was next one reigning. And we get down here, and it says in verse 22, it says, Now Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. So they were oppressed by Syria, who was closer, and then sometimes they were oppressed um, by greater parts of the Assyrian Empire. And it says this, look at verse 23. I'm saying all these things to get to this point. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them. This compassion of the Lord led to the time that Jonah's prophesied under Jeroboam. So this compassion leads to restoration and peace and relief eventually during this reign of Jeroboam. And the ESV says, Jonah witnessed firsthand the restorative compassion of God extended to his wayward people. So that's our background. So why is that background important? Why is it important for us to consider historical facts that might seem a little bit boring, a little bit tedious? Why is it necessary to do that work? Here's why. The stage is set, is it not? You've got this empire that is not godless, but they're polytheistic, so they don't believe in the one true God. They're in a hard time. If ever they're going to listen closely, much like us, when times are hard, when there's a strain, when there's affliction, when things aren't going exactly as we would hope, that's often when we listen more closely when God speaks, and it's no different with this empire. So 
Things are not great, and, and the stage is set for them to hear something from God and maybe actually listen. Not only that, Jonah has experienced this restorative movement of God with his own people because they turn from him, and then they turn back, and as one who speaks for God, you would think, man, Jonah, of all people, is the guy. He's the one in the perfect place at the perfect time to be like, yeah, let's go to Nineveh. I'm gonna, I can't wait to throw down this eight-word sermon to the Ninevites and have everyone turn. You would think the stage is set perfectly. But look at verse 3. What's Jonah's response? But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare. He, he didn't do anything illegal. He was on the up and up. He paid his fare went in, down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Anytime you see something repeated in Scripture, that means you're supposed to pay more attention. And so he is going away from the presence of the Lord. So what was it that was bothering old Jonah? The presence of the Lord. Absolutely. That's the problem here. So my question is this. Why did Jonah respond the way he did? Maybe out of fear? Hatred for an enemy. Oh, we're going to dig into that here in a minute. Jonah might have been a bigoted, ethnocentric racist. See, we, get the, we see these stories, and we see these, these things with Jonah, and, and we, we hear the VeggieTales stuff, and it's like, be brave in the belly of the fish so that you can be spit up by the fish and go continue doing good things. And he was a, he was a bit of a punk here. He was, why didn't he go? Because he didn't want to. It wasn't in his plan. He heard from God. He had experienced what God was wanting for the Ninevites. He knew who the Ninevites were because they had afflicted Israel, his people of whom he is a prophet, and God said, go. And his response was, no. It was disobedience. Textbook disobedience is what we're seeing here from Jonah. And he's wanting to get, again, away from the presence of God because the presence of God is annoying old Jonah right now. The presence of God who is there speaking to him, Jonah doesn't like what he's hearing and he wants to flee and get away. So look at verses 4 through 17. It says, but the Lord hurled a great wind. We could read all of this in seven minutes, so, so we're going to cover a lot of this text. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. Now remember, these guys, they're not like first-time sailors, right? They do this for a living. So much like in the Sea of Galilee, when you know, Jesus freaked everyone out on that one, to freak a sailor out, it has to be bad because they're used to bad weather. They're used to big waves. They're used to the ship being tossed. And so here it says that uh, then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. Again, that's fitting because they're polytheistic. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea. Like they're so scared, they're saying, I don't even care what my job is right now. I don't care if someone wants me to deliver this BMW. We're going to throw the BMW into the water because I'd rather live without it than die with it. And so they are trying to make things right. And they hurled the cargo that was, uh, they probably weren't shipping a BMW, but that's just an example, into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah, look at Jonah. Again, what's Jonah doing? He'd gone out into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain comes and says to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? You sleeper. Y'all should say that if your spouse is sleeping and you're awake, especially if the kids are awake and your spouse. What do you mean, you sleeper? 
Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God, um, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. I mean, these guys are in panic mode, but what, what's Jonah doing? Whatever Jonah wants to do, which was take a nappy nap at that time. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So it's not just a dire situation. Now these guys are saying, something's causing this. And they're looking around at each other, saying, someone is causing this. So they cast lots, and oh, the lot fell on Jonah. What a coincidence. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, sometimes, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. I absolutely love that word. He said to them, Pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So, he almost looks noble, but he's just flat selfish. It almost, this is the part where sometimes if we misspeak this to our children, we say, oh, Jonah was just so brave, he put his life on the line and said, throw me into the sea, I'll take you. And no, he would rather just die than deal with what he needs to deal with. That's where he's at, throw me into the sea. Look what happens to the pagan sailors. You would think a bunch of pagan sailors who are a little bit hacked off would say, fine, and toss his tail into the sea. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, the Lord, not a Lord, the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So probably wasn't the plan that he had for evangelism on the boat, but by getting thrown into the sea, those guys end up worshiping the Lord at the end. And then look what happens. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of fish three days and three nights. So God responds by going after Jonah and not letting him run because God's will is God's will, and Jonah is clearly running from God's will. The pagan sailors have a better response than Jonah, who's a prophet of God. I don't want us to miss this. The pagan sailors. I mean, if you've ever been around pagan sailors, you know they're probably not the most savory of, of characters. And if, imagine polytheistic pagan sailors, and they're sitting here trying to row hard so they don't have to throw them in. They say a prayer to the Lord, and they're, they're, they're showing a little bit more character that's more godlike than Jonah. And so... Um, at this point, the least responsive person to God's sovereign movement is Jonah. So let's go back to the opening of this book, the, ver the very first verse. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil, their evil has come, upon, come up before me. What are we reminded about concerning God's view of evil? What? He hates it. Who, who initiated the conversation? God. Why? 
because there was evil that he saw. Dever, in his book, he says, he, he makes a note, he says, God is holy. You and I might become accustomed to lying and cheating, adultery and idolatry, hatred and murder, as commonplace as these sins are. But God has always been revolted by these things. This is a sobering reminder for us. We have television. We have internet. We have all kinds of manner of fleshliness that is bombarded upon our minds and our children's minds all the time. If we don't guard against it, you will be conformed to the world if you are not transformed by the renewal of your mind. That is a reality. We, have, we, can, we can inundate our minds with whatever we want at any moment that we want. It's at the tip of our fingers all the time. Evil has always been revolting to God. It always has been. It always will be. And it's a problem when we become sort of accustomed to it because we're supposed to view it the way God views it. So my question is, what's the consequence of becoming accustomed, accustomed to the things that God hates and maybe what were the consequences for Jonah? What happens when we become accustomed to that which God hates? It's not that we're welcoming of it. It's just normal. They always say that word on TV. We, we always have men acting like women, and it's their choice. We, you know, we may not say we love it or we welcome it or we cherish it, but what happens when we become accustomed to it? What happened to Jonah? Indifference. Why would he be indifferent to the possibility of God saving a pagan polytheistic nation? Because he was, he's accustomed to some things. He's not bothered the way that God's bothered. He's not eager for holiness and purity and cleansing the way that God is eager for it. What else? What are some other results of that? Yeah. Not trusting that he has any power to overcome it and in God's power to overcome for him. What else? Yeah, what's the consequence for Jonah? What, how does that play out for Jonah? Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yes. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm thinking, when he said power, I'm thinking even the power that, that he could do such a thing because he has such hatred for, or such disdain for a people group. I mean, for, for these people who, who had oppressed him so horribly. He became self-centered. Now, again, it's good. It's good to stop and say, does Jonah have a reason to, to doubt anything good would come of going to talk to them? I mean, they're, they're, they're a bad people. They're, they have been terrible towards Israel. No doubt about it. He's, had, he's, he's from a hard place. He, he's had a hard life. There have been things he has seen that are nightmarish. But because of this view, what's happened here is he's became self-centered. He didn't view sin the way that God viewed sin in his own life or in the lives of others. He didn't view the need for a Savior the way that God did. And he didn't view the loss the way that God did. And even in his disobedience, though, that God goes after Jonah. That's the beauty of this. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Nope. I know the worst about them. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. It happens. It's a reality. 
Yep. God goes after him. And it's interesting, it's a wonderful reminder that, that he saves us from pretty desperate depths. God's able to reach us um, wherever we are. And some people continue to run from God like Jonah did because they're so far from, from him anyway. And like sometimes you'll share the gospel with people and their first response is, man, I have done, you don't, you don't even know what I've done. And it's like, no, you're not so bad that God can't pull you back in to use him, to use you for, for his purposes. Um, uh, God gives us this story to remind, to remind us, at least in part, that there's great hope and great reason to quit running from God. So if you're running from God in any way, and that can be big picture or it can be particular sin. So the, you can have a lifestyle where you've run from God. Um, my brother is in a setting where he's, he's surrounded by people who have just totally adopted the homosexual lifestyle. And they're practicing homosexuals. They're not just people who struggle with same-sex attraction. They're practicing and, and as he and I have talked about this, I, I'm just, I, keep, I always remind him because he, sometimes he's like, I'm a Christian and sometimes it feels hopeless because it's just their norm and I don't know how their norm is going to change and everyone around them except me just affirms their norm. And I'm like, they're not so far gone that God can't rescue, that God, that God can't, like if they would stop running, something might happen and you, you just have to remind them of that. You have to speak truth when you see it and you have to love them the way that Christ would love them. Or maybe for you it's a particular sin. Like maybe it's not this lifestyle where you've been running from God. Maybe there's this one thing you're holding on to where you're just continuing in it. Um, anger, lust, anxiety, fear, doubt, idolatry of any kind. I mean, sometimes we get into a place of saying, I've just, that's, I've always done that. I, I've tried, I'm, I've quit quitting. And the reality here is a reminder that, that God can save you from desperate depths because of his grace and because of his view of your sin and his view of evil and his desire to redeem you from it. Everyone who has ever been saved by God has been saved by God sending someone to tell that person truth. So it's really good as Christians to remember who God sent to tell you the gospel and urge you towards repentance. It may have been your parents, it may have been a pastor, it may have been a Sunday school teacher, it may have been a neighbor, it may have been a friend, but it's a good exercise to say, who told me about the Lord and, and when did God draw me out of running from him and out of disobedience and out of not believing in him. Um, it's good to remember who sent you, who God sent to tell you the gospel and urge you to repentance. You were as helpless as Jonah in, in the whale's belly. So these first two chapters, Jonah's in the belly of the whale. He prays and um, it, it's a very, it's a wholehearted prayer. I would like to spend a whole week on it, but we're not going to. But after he prays and he, he comes to a place of repentance in the belly of the whale. And so, um, it's, a, it's significant. God keeps him alive for three days. This isn't just um, literary devices to, to communicate a story. It's not just metaphor or symbolism. We believe that this actually happened. And if you believe that there's a creator God who created whales, you can believe that he could create one that could swallow a man and he could stay alive. It, it can happen. It's a possibility. I remember that was one of my hitches as a kid. I was like, ah, bull. I'm not, I don't believe in that. But, but it's a reality. And, and we don't need to get caught up in uh, the possibility there if you believe in a creator God. But what happened after he repented... And after he gave thanks, and after he called upon the name of the Lord, we see in 2.10, it says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So in these first two chapters, Jonah runs from God's will, but God follows him. And then these, these last two chapters, which we'll spend less, a little less time on, is that he's running from God's love. You would think that after spending a few nights uh, in that spot, praying, getting in touch with reality, realizing the desperate situation that you're in, and there's only one hope of you actually continuing in life that you might obey God, getting puked back onto the shore where God wants you, 
you would think that at that point God would have your attention. There would be no more hiccups. We don't want any more whales swallowing us. I don't want to feel that sort of consequence ever again, and they would move forward. But that's not actually what happens. So look what happens. In chapter 3, he does what God originally said, and he goes to Nineveh, and it's wonderful. So look at 1 through 5. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against, the message that I, against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Three days, it's significant, kind of a repeated thing. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was his masterful sermon that was the hope of the turning of a pagan, polytheistic, godless, like true godless nation to, to repent, to change their ways. Um, and look what happens. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Jonah's sermon is short. It's not real impressive. They respond with obedience. And look at verses 6 through 10. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and, sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through, uh, and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Like, this is a home run, right? By all appearances, this is an absolute home run. What follows is exactly what you would hope for every evangelistic endeavor. You urge people towards repentance, and they repent and follow the Lord and cry out to the one true God. And in doing so, God relents. The warning that he had, you're going to be overturned, was no longer necessary because the reason for their being overturned had been repented of. So God said, I'm not going to do what I was going to do. And from an evangelistic perspective, this really couldn't have gone any better. But look at uh, chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Why is Jonah angry? Because God saved them. What's Jonah angry about? Yeah, he, he, was, he was maybe a little more fired up about the judging part, but all the time he knew that God would, would relent if they would repent. And so, particularly, why is he angry? What phrase would you use to say why Jonah's angry? He certainly doesn't think they deserve it. But what's, 
He felt more righteous than they were, absolutely. Didn't go his way. Unfair. Why was it unfair? Why didn't it go his way? Why did he feel more righteous? Because they were evil. And God showed him mercy. He's... Oh, yeah. He definitely lost sight of his own sin. It was no longer a problem. Here what we're seeing is he's really, really angry because he knows how God is. That's what he just said. I, knew, I know how you are, God. I know you're gracious. I know you're slow to anger. I know you abound in steadfast love. And he feels ripped off because what's his job? He's a prophet. He, he warns people. And now the warning was empty. So he's, he might be out of a job when he gets back because, well, the, the Ninevites are repenting. Oh, dang it, the Ninevites are repenting. You see what I'm saying? Because his job was dependent upon the truth that went with what he said or else he would be proven to be a liar and, and to be empty with his words. But here he's upset because God has been so slow to anger, merciful, gracious, and abounding in steadfast love. And look at verses 5 through 11. It says, jo- uh, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Exceedingly glad. That's the first time we see Jonah exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said, it is better for me to die than to live without that plant. But God said to Jonah again, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Rational thinking here. And the Lord said, you This is so important, guys. The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh? Nineveh didn't earn that. If anyone didn't earn it, it's Nineveh. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people it's about the size of Frisco, who, or no, the part above it, who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. God has, like, serious compassion towards Nineveh, and Jonah doesn't. So, the book ends in a question, and I think it begs the question, will you love those whom God loves? Do you believe in second, third, fourth, fifth chances the way that God does? It's good to remember that the only reason the earth still exists in its current form is that there are children of God on this planet who do not yet know that they're God's children. That's why the earth still exists in its current form. There's people who need to hear the gospel, and once they all hear it, Matthew 24, 14 says, and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Dever has a note, he says, a faithful preacher of God's word never revels simply in God's judgment. To be faithful to the word is not to render a person just ready for God's judgment. What that means is that to sit around and wait for all of the wicked people around you to be judged without any inclination to share the gospel with them, even if they are horrible, 
may very well reveal that your heart is a lot like Jonah's. It's important that we identify the ugly issues in our heart that cause us to resent the possibility of another's repentance. And I, I want to just share a couple, and then we'll close in prayer. Uh, racism might be one. It's pretty rampant in Hunt County. We have a really ugly history of treating people with different skin color um, improperly. Um, racism is, is the belief that one race is superior over another because of characteristics that you think are inherent to a particular race. And so it's not just white people hating black people, but the, the push was white supremacy because you think you're better because characteristics are inherent. And it's ugly. And sometimes we won't share because of racism. Sometimes it's ethnocentrism, which is evaluating another culture according to the preconceptions originating in the standards and customs of your own culture. Americans are the worst about this judging every other country by our country. We were doing a flag study with my children, all the flags of the different countries, and my little daughter says, Daddy, look at these countries. They're all copying us. They got stars and stripes on all their flags. <laughs> and I was like, you snobby little American. Sweetheart, we're a baby. That flag's 1,500 years old with the stars and the stripes in different places on it. But it was, just, it was just that perspective that you're, you're looking at everything through the, the lens of, of the way you are. There's chronological snobbery that we do things, the way we're doing things now must be the best way it's ever been done because that's the way we do it. There's fear. There's selfishness. There's a number of reasons and ugly heart issues that may keep us from rejoicing at the thought of evil people repenting. I would ask you, given what we see with ISIS given how we have seen Christian brothers and sisters lose their lives in terrible ways, I just want you to check your heart. I mean, you heard Ben mention earlier, like they saw some vile things. Israel was horribly oppressed by the Assyrians, and that's who they were being sent to, to love. I look at people who are doing missions over there, and I marvel, because I think, how, how can your heart be so in tune with God to be willing to risk things that many of us would never risk. How do you feel when a person of Middle Eastern descent sits next to you on a plane or at a restaurant? You know, do you have thought, because if you look at them and you don't like what you see, that's racism. A lot of our grandparents would, would say things about black people that are terrible because they had a bad experience. You have one bad experience with one person who's different than you and you label that entire race as faulty and wrong and less than yours, that's racism. I'm sorry you had a bad experience, but God calls us to love the nations. I mean, Jonah is a loud, loud call to love the nations. It's a loud call to be willing to take risks for the sake of the gospel, to view sin the way he views sin. When you see the sin that's taking place because of people who are against God, it should break your heart. It should make you want to see them turn and repent, not just be judged. Now, there is a part where God over and over again will say, judgment's coming. That's a reality. But you don't just revel in the idea of judgment. Until then, we don't know who is his and who is not. We're, in fact, Matthew says, uh, it, it says to, to make sure not to separate the wheat and the tares because you don't know. You may throw people into the fire that weren't supposed to go into the fire. What you do is you sow and you share and you love and you share the gospel and you take those risks that are necessary to reach people where they're at. And so this reality here is a heart check for us. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. 
He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's aim, God has always been more committed to reaching the world than his people have been. God's always been more committed to reaching the world than his people have been, and that's why he sent Christ. And I'm going to send an email explaining uh, how Jesus is better than Jonah, so y'all can spend some time reading through that in your own studies this week. Let's pray. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. I confess that there's so much housekeeping uh, in these first Bible studies that it's hard to get into the study, and oh, Lord, there's just so much more on the table. But my hope tonight is that you would speak to us um, what we need to hear, that as we go, you would give us understanding, Lord. My, my prayer is that we would guard our hearts against racism, against ethnocentrism, against fears, against stereotypes, against selfishness, that we would see what happened to Jonah, even when he had good reason not to really love the Assyrians, but we would see what happened there and that we would be quickened to obey and to trust you even when it seemed like things would go really bad. Lord, I confess in front of this whole group that in this area, I have been a coward many times. I have forgotten about the spirit of power because I was so so wrapped up in the spirit of timidity. And Lord, I want to grow in this. I want to think and see things the way you do. I want to have an eternal perspective and a continual awareness of your presence. And I want to see lost people, even vile lost people, turn and receive Christ. And I know that as that happens and as that great commission is fulfilled, that then the end will come and you will return and you will establish your kingdom here on earth. Lord, we love you very much. We thank you for our time tonight. We humble ourselves before you and ask you to continue to teach us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all go get your kiddos. And be looking for an email from me.